Today we're beginning a new series, and uh, the series is called Sacred. That's a word, sacred, that we don't use very much anymore. It seems to have fallen out of favor to some degree. Webster's Dictionary defines the word sacred as worthy of religious veneration or entitled to reverence and respect. That seems to make sense. In its original context, the word sacred was, was used to delineate something that has or had been set apart for some divine purpose. When used in common parlance, we understand the idea pretty intuitively. If you've ever visited one of the Nazi concentration camps in Europe, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, The moment you walk through the gates of Auschwitz, um, where as many as 1.5 million men, women, and children were put to death, you feel that there's something sacred about that place. You feel the same thing if you visit the beaches of Normandy. Most people have a similar emotional experience when a bride walks down the aisle at a wedding or at a funeral when a family says goodbye to a loved one. Again, there's something about those moments that feels particularly sacred. Some people have that experience of the sacred when standing on the summit of a mountain or looking out over the ocean at sunset. We know intuitively that at that moment, that place or that experience is sacred. What about scripture? What does scripture have to teach us about sacredness and how are we to respond to it? Throughout the month of April, we're going to go through a sermon series entitled Sacred, and we're going to be looking at what God says is sacred and how we are to respond to being in a sacred place or in a sacred moment. Today, we're going to be talking about the sacredness of God's presence. But before we begin, let me take a moment and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that we actually are able to be involved in this bizarre tension between what we can see tangibly with our eyes and what we can feel with our hands, Father. And then there's this other sense, Father, of sacredness that we experience as well, Father, when we come into your presence, Father, when we have certain experiences in this world. And so, Father, I pray that you would um, open the eyes of our hearts, as it were, so that we might experience um, the true sacredness that exists all around us at all times, Father. And in particular today, Father, I pray that we would have a life-changing encounter with you, the living God, Father. I pray that that encounter would reveal to us um, the truth about who we are, that we're more broken than we realized and yet more loved as well. Father, I pray that that encounter with you would awaken us, Father, to what's going on in the world around us, Father, that there's a battle between good and evil. Father, I pray that that experience with your presence um, might strengthen us and might call us to action. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the question is, how should an encounter with God change us? How should we respond when we encounter God? At the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if any of you guys have ever read that book, the You'll know that the Pevensey children, those are the, the kids that get pulled into this other world called Narnia. Well, at the end of the book, they're magically transported back home to England until they're needed again in Narnia. That need eventually arises, and they arrive um, in the next book, Prince Caspian, in a part of Narnia that they don't, they don't recognize. They quickly realize that they're hopelessly lost. They don't know where they are. They don't know how to get to where they're going. And at that point, Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the book, appears to Lucy, one of the Pevensey children, but the other children don't see him yet, and so they don't believe her when she says he wants them to follow him. And so that night, Aslan appears to her again. I'm going to read just a section of this book from Prince Caspian. 
Lucy woke out of the deepest sleep you can imagine with the feeling that the voice she liked the best in the world had been calling her name. She thought at first it was her father's voice, but that did not seem quite right. Then she thought it was Peter's voice, but that did not seem to fit either. Lucy came the call again, neither her father's voice nor Peter's. At this point in the story, she gets up and she follows Aslan's voice through the forest until she eventually sees him. I'll jump back into the story. A circle of grass, smooth as lawn, met her eyes with dark trees dancing all around it. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. Welcome, child, he said. For a time, she was so happy that she did not want to speak, but Aslan spoke. Lucy, he said, we must not lie here for long. You have work in hand. She has this encounter with Aslan. For those of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know that Aslan appears to everyone in the story at some point in time, and people respond to his presence in different ways. Some are drawn to him, as we saw Lucy just now was drawn to him. Some are repulsed, and their only experience is disgust and fear. They want to escape him, and still others are just completely undone. No one, however, is unmoved by his presence. There's something uniquely sacred about being in the presence of God. We know that. That's no surprise. After Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai, his face shines with radiance, so much so that people can't bear to look at him. When Isaiah encounters God in his vision, he is undone. The angels who surround the throne of God in Revelation 4, night and day, cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's all they say. It's impossible to be in the presence of God without being aware that his very presence is sacred. It's a sacred experience. No one stands in God's presence unchanged. So what do we see throughout Scripture about the impact of God's presence upon us? I'm going to unpack three different things. There's far more than this, but we're going to look at three things this morning. The first is that God's presence reveals who we are. God's presence reveals who we are. My senior year of high school I actually skipped my senior prom um, to go to a, uh, a youth retreat at Awanata Valley. I had just broken up with my girlfriend, Heidi Axelson, and this was part of the process of really kind of recommitting my life to God. And so uh, several buddies of mine and I went up to Awanata Valley, and we did you know, all the things that you do when you go to these youth retreats. We had great talks. We had great music. Um, we went for hikes. We swam in the lake. We had all this you know, great fun and great time together connecting, and I didn't regret it a bit. Well, the last uh, night of the retreat, um, they had a slideshow, and in the slideshow, it just recounted everything from the week. And so, you know, everybody was watching all these great, fun experiences they had on the slideshow. And one of the slides popped up, and it was me and my buddy Todd Lynn. Now, I, uh, at the time, was five foot eight and probably 155 pounds, a soccer player. And Todd was 6'2 or 6'3 and about 225. Um, I played soccer in college. He played football in college. He had about 7% body fat. And uh, his, his traps, this muscle right here, like literally touched the bottom of his earlobes. Like he was just a stud. 
Now, I knew he was a stud. I must, you know, I wasn't a dummy. But it wasn't until I saw that picture of me standing in his presence that I realized to what degree Todd was a stud and I was a very nice person. <laughs> like that was the way, that's where the comparison ended, right there. Now, I know it's a silly example, but maybe you get the point. The point is this. When we stand in God's presence, we see ourselves a little more clearly. When we see uh, who we are, and we see who we are not when we stand in the presence of God. When we stand in God's presence, we definitely see the reality, or maybe we experience the reality of our frailty and of our brokenness. Think for a moment about when God appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden immediately after they had sinned by eating of the forbidden fruit. Look at Genesis 3. We read there in verses 8 through 10, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Think for a moment about the impact of God's presence upon the newly rebellious first man and first woman. Instead of running to God, they now run from him. Instead of vulnerably opening themselves to him, they now close themselves off from him. When God confronts Adam, Adam responds by saying, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. God's presence, instead of bringing Adam joy and comfort, now fills him with fear. And God's sacred presence becomes a painful reminder of Adam's nakedness, that he is no longer who he once was, and he is no longer who he is supposed to be. We see a similar response in Isaiah chapter 6 when God calls Isaiah to be a prophet. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like Adam before him, when Isaiah stood in God's presence, his true self was revealed. He realized that God was holy, and he was not. Mary Poplin, a professor of education and dean of the educational school at Claremont University, attended a Methodist church as a child, but she began uh, later on in her life researching and looking through other spiritual traditions, including Buddhism, transcendental meditation, and even telepathic extempt, uh, attempts to bend spoons. She talks about that in her book. She began teaching at Claremont, where a Christian friend encouraged her spiritual journey. Eventually, in 1993, she became a Christian, and in her own words, here's how it happened, and I'm going to read from her book. I knew a graduate student who lived his life differently. First of all, he prayed for me for eight years, and he would say irritating things like, if you ever want to do anything with your spiritual life, I'd like to help you. That was irritating because I thought I was doing plenty with my spiritual life. You know, I was bending spoons. He worked at our university as a professor for a year on a sabbatical, and when he left, I had a dream. I still felt empty and confused, and in the dream, I was in a long line of people suspended in the air. The line seemed eternal on both ends. Jesus was standing, greeting us in line. 
When I looked at Jesus, I knew immediately what I was seeing. I couldn't even look at him, but for a second I fell down to his feet and I started weeping. And the only way that I can describe the feeling I had in the dream is that I could sense that every cell in my body, and I could feel total shame in every cell. When Jesus grabbed my shoulders, however, I felt total peace. Like I'd never felt in my life, I woke up and I was crying. So I went to the phone and I called this gentleman. I called him and I said, I think I need to talk to you about my spiritual life. And he said, let's meet for dinner. At dinner, he said to me, why do you think you have something to do with your spiritual life now? And out of my mouth came something that I never thought about. I simply said to him, I have some black thing in my chest and I don't know what it is. He just nodded and I told him the dream and I said, what, what should I do? And he said, do you have a Bible? Since Jesus was the one in your dream, you might read the New Testament. I began to read, and we began to meet in a town between our cities about once a week. That was November to January. In January, my mother wanted to go to North Carolina to where she'd grown up, and we went to this little Methodist church, not because she was religious. She just wanted to see her friends. When we got there, I was really moved to just go up to the altar and give my life to the Lord. It wasn't even an altar call, however. It was just communion. The guy up front said, you don't have to be a member of any church to take communion. You just have to believe that Jesus Christ lived and that he died for your sins and you want to have him in your life now. And when he said that, I was so powerfully moved that I actually thought, even if a tornado rips through this building, I'm going to get that communion. I took the communion. I knelt down and said, please come and get me. Please come and get me. Please come and get me. And when I took the communion and I said that, I felt free. I felt like tons of things had been lifted off of me. Romans 1 says that God is obvious to everyone, and the minds of people who deny him become darkened. Though they think themselves wise, they're actually foolish. That was me. The scriptures began to heal my mind so I could actually think again. So what we see in each of those stories is that an encounter with God reveals the truth about who we really are. What else do we see about these encounters with God? The second thing we see is that God's sacred presence often awakens us, often sort of um, shocks us out of our slumber. Look at Exodus 3 verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn outside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And many of you are familiar with this story of Moses. He was adopted as a baby by the Pharaoh um, at that time over Egypt. Many historians believe that that Pharaoh was Thutmose II, who reigned from 1493 to 1479 B.C., and Moses was raised in, uh, as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's court, but he knew about his Israel, uh, Israelite heritage from his mother and his sister, Miriam. Um, later, as an adult, Moses saw an Egyptian beating up an Israelite slave, and Moses intervened, killing the Egyptian and then hiding the body. 
Fearing, however, that he would be discovered for his crime, Moses fled from Egypt to the land of Midian. While there, he met his future father-in-law, Jethro, and he met his future wife, Zipporah. Scripture records that Moses then worked as a shepherd for Jethro for the next 40 years. Clearly, Moses had kind of just gone on with his life. He was married. He was raising kids. He was a working man. We're not told, but it's likely that Moses wasn't thinking about the God of Israel at all. He probably just moved on his life. In fact, the author goes out of his way to point out that Moses was married to a daughter of the priest of Midian. And so Jethro was a priest of Midian. The Midianites at this time were worshiping the Baals and Asherah, so they were worshiping idols. And there's a good chance that Moses had simply adopted the customs and the religious practices of his new family until that day when God appeared to him in the burning bush. What happened was God's presence awakened Moses and redirected not only his life, but the life of his family and the lives of countless others at that moment. Many of us can easily identify with Moses before God appeared to him in the burning bush. Some of you know that you're simply going through the motions of life right now, right? There's nothing transcendent. There's no purpose. You're simply sort of going through the motions. Like Moses, you've slowly but surely and uncritically adopted the values and the practices of the surrounding culture. Maybe you're not any involved in any overtly sinful behavior, but maybe you've grown cold. Maybe you've grown numb. Maybe you've grown distant from God. If so, you might hear these stories, and you might long for a life-changing encounter with the living God this morning. If so, I encourage you to ask God for that life-changing encounter with Him. Others of you might be more like Moses after his encounter with God. You've You've had an experience with God's presence, and that presence has awakened you from your slumber. I know any number of people who've had experiences just like this, and that experience has left them changed forever. Now, I was tempted here to use some dramatic example or some dramatic conversion story, but I thought instead I'd use one that was slightly more relatable. Here is uh, a story by David Brooks uh, talking about his conversation um, with a woman about his conversion from atheism or secular Judaism to Christianity. It's from a recent uh, interview with Theos, which is an online British magazine, and I'm just going to read a brief transcript of his interview. The interviewer asks, was God a presence to you, an absence, a theory, or a theory at that stage in your life? She was talking about before his conversion. His answer is this, it was just an absence. As a Jew, I experienced Judaism as peoplehood, as the Exodus story, as a procession of the centuries, as one's responsibility to a people who just 16 years before I was born were nearly exterminated from Europe. I certainly did not experience any presence of God. I had no encounter with God. I had no sense of the transcendent. These were just important moral systems built around a series of books that were useful to read for wisdom. The interviewer then goes on. What were the beats in the song that led you to call yourself a Christian now? His response, when I found faith, I felt more Jewish than ever, but also more Christian than ever. I think what happened was I found it all happened in the wrong order. It happened in an order that didn't make sense. I experienced grace before I experienced God. And so I experienced some sort of love, unconditional love, before I figured that there was some guy in the sky then I experienced a sense of being observed, and then gradually I experienced a sense that there is a moral order to the universe. I just had this sense of things clicking into place, and I didn't have words for it. And it wasn't like Jesus walked through the wall and said, hey, come follow me. It's not like that ever happened. 
It was the most boring process imaginable of gradually, gradually life seemed to become more enchanted and more alive. The spiritual realm seemed to be alive with a transcendent and divine presence. Now, some of you know that part of uh, David Brooks becoming a Christian was because of a relationship with Tim Keller, and that comes out later in the interview, which I think is fascinating. But the reason I use this example this morning is because some of you have had an experience that's much more like Brooks' experience. Your encounter with God leading you to this new life, awakening you, might have occurred when you were looking at a sunset, might have occurred when you were in uh, some, at some retreat, Young Life retreat, something involving campus outreach. Maybe it was when you were listening to music. It may have occurred when reading Tolstoy or T.S. Eliot. God's presence awakened you to the real world, and now your life has changed forever. You can no longer imagine a world in which God's presence isn't a reality for you. In fact, it may be that it's more than a reality. It may be that it's a necessity. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote the following. He said this, men and women, when they are truly awakened, begin to realize there is nothing so serious as to be without the presence of God. Let me read that one more time. Men and women, when they're truly awakened, begin to realize there's nothing so serious as to be without the presence of God. So, God's sacred presence reveals who we truly are. His sacred presence awakens us oftentimes from this zombie-like slumber. And then finally, we see this morning that the sacred presence of the Lord often redirects us. Look at 1 Kings 19, verses 9 through 16. I'm going to give you the context first. Israel had begun to worship Baal, and this was in the time of Elijah. So Elijah, in this, uh, this section of the Old Testament, challenges their prophets to a show of strength so that he can prove who the real God really is. God, through Elijah, defeated the prophets of Baal in this dramatic fashion on Mount Carmel. Maybe, maybe you've read the story before. And when God defeated the prophets of Baal, he expected repentance and revival to break out all over Israel, but instead, everybody just kind of goes about their lives as normal. And in fact, instead, Queen Jezebel doubled down and actually put a hit out on Elijah. She threatened to have him killed. So, in fear and depression, Elijah flees into the wilderness and he runs away from the people of Israel. He runs away from God. He definitely wanted to be done with ministry, and several of the things he says indicate that he wanted to be done with life itself. He was just spent, just done. Finally, Elijah found himself in a cave on Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. If you remember, that's where God appeared to Moses some 600 years earlier, and it's there that God appears to Elijah as well. Let's jump into the story. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? In other words, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be there. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And so God responds, says this, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and then he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Notice 
hear that God had commanded Elijah to go out and stand on the mount, but Elijah hadn't obeyed. He was still in the cave. He remained in the cave until he heard the still, small voice of God. Verse 13. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Some of you know the remainder of the story. God redirects Elijah away from the desert and back to Israel because he has a job to do. We don't just see this redirection here in the story of Elijah, however. We also see it in the story of Jacob. We see it in the story of Moses. We see it in the story of Isaiah. We see it in the stories of John the Baptist. We see it in the story of Peter and of John the Apostle. When God appears to us, inevitably he redirects us where he needs us to go and ultimately where we need to go. My question for you this morning is, where do you think God might be directing you? Where do you think God might be redirecting you? To what reality might God's presence be awakening you to? Maybe you're walking around like a zombie, maybe you're in slumber, and maybe God's presence will awaken you. What might God need you to see about yourself, about who you truly are?